Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. Top of the morning to you, listeners. <laughs> That's so appropriate for you with your red hair. <laughs> if you haven't guessed it, we're taking a trip across the Atlantic today. <laughs> all for St. Patrick's Day. Yep. Tomorrow, all the green gets pulled out. We didn't do this when I was a kid, but I remember my kids building little leprechaun traps and trying to catch them. And then there would always be one classroom that the leprechaun hit and they would kind of destroy the classroom a little bit. <laughs> Through all of their trickery, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, today, when we visit the Emerald Isle, we're going to be talking about a heartless dirtbag that was full of what he thought was trickery to get away with murder. Oh, goodness. He took the life of the person he was supposed to cleave on to until his own death. Instead, he blended her to her own death. Oh, no. He kills his wife? Mm-hmm. All for his own selfish desires. And then he tried to cover it up with a whole bunch of trickery. Oh, so was he after the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Well, there's some debate about that, but I think he had another motive too. Huh. This one, Christy, is going to get you so riled up. Oh, no. Because this guy's selfishness and disregard for other human beings, not only the victim, but also so many others, is almost unbelievable. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. It was enough that sometimes I found myself believing his claims of innocence just because it was so hard to fathom that someone else could be this cold-hearted. No way. It wasn't enough just to take the life of someone he loved for his own gain, but he reveled in others' pain. Oh, man. I know I'm going to get riled, and I'm going to apologize in advance for anything I might say while I'm riled. <laughs> <laughs> it's a red hair. You listeners know me by now. Sometimes I just can't bite my tongue. Today, I'm going to walk you through this case as it happened, telling you all the details and the evidence as we go through so that you can see just how cold-hearted this dirtbag is and how he tried to trick everyone and failed miserably. Good thing he failed. He was one of those dirtbags that thought he was smarter than he actually was. Oh, I love to hate those kind of dirtbags. Mm-hmm. Joseph O'Reilly was born in April 1972. His parents had married in their early 20s and settled near Kilbarrett Rock, a working-class suburb of North Dublin. Joe was the second of four children. He had an older brother and two younger sisters. His youngest sister had Down syndrome and was blind and required a lot of his mother's care and devotion. While Joe was the second oldest, his size and stature set him up to be the natural leader of his siblings and most groups that he would take part in. As a youth, he had always towered over the rest of his family members, and as an adult, he would reach the height of six foot five. Ooh, wow. He was a big guy. That's tall. That's more than a foot taller than we are. <laughs> <laughs> as a teenager, he attended Greendale Community School. He was an athletic kid and liked to play football, and he loved Star Wars. It was during these years that his parents divorced, and this was not taken well by Joe. Joe Sr. moved to England after the divorce and had limited contact with his children after that. Aww. Usually it was just short conversations over the phone. And this presumably made Joe feel abandoned by his father, because he became very vocal about the kind of father that he would be, and how he would always stay in his children's lives. 
That's so sad when a child becomes neglected by their parent. I'll never quite understand that. Well, he moved to a whole different country. Which was a choice that he made, leaving his children behind. Mm -hmm. But even at that, if you move to another country, you can still put in the effort to be talking to them regularly, coming to visit, sending them to come visit you. There's definitely ways around it. And it seemed from Joe's perspective, his father did none of that. He just kind of left him all to his own. Hmm. At 19, Joe was working for Arnott's department store. And there he noticed a beautiful girl named Rachel Kalali. Her height was what first struck him. She was six feet tall. Ooh, Mm -hmm. what a queen. I've always felt like I would be a little bit more beautiful if I could stretch up. (laughs) You know, because if you took your compact little self and you stretched it up a few inches, that might be nice. (laughs) And I wonder if it's one of those things that because we're shorter, that we would love to be taller. But I wonder if Rachel maybe sometimes felt that being tall wasn't the greatest thing. Yeah, maybe not. Mind you, I'm surrounded in my family by a lot of tall women, and they seem to love it. (laughs) Not six feet tall, but still tall. Tall is where it's at. I always say just a few more inches would make my life a lot easier. Just to reach the top kitchen cupboards. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Where I don't have to use a stool or tongs to get things down. (laughs) Well, when Joe first saw Rachel, this is what he noticed. He had overheard her talking about a softball practice, and he was determined to get a date with her. He showed up at her practice and then continually asked her out to the movies, another of his passions. And he would do this over and over again until he wore her down. And then she finally said, sure. Mm -hmm. Rachel came from a close-knit family. There were five children in all, and all were adopted. Rachel was the middle child. Her dad was a hard worker as a plumber, and her mom stayed home with the kids. Rachel was an athletic person, and that was the cincher for Joe. Baseball and sports were also his passion, and he thought this was a true sign. Rachel fell for Joe's persistence. He was just not a guy that would give up on anything. Hmm. So he eventually was appearing a little endearing to her. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone wants to feel wanted, I guess. And as they dated, Joe was super attentive to Rachel. They both had similar interests, and they started to make plans together. And it seems they had similar ideas and plans for the future. Joe proposed at the top of the Eiffel Tower in 1994, and the couple were married in 1997, very much in love. And that's where the story should have ended. They should have lived happily ever after. They were this gorgeous couple, they had all these similar interests, but it wasn't meant to be. In the early years of their marriage, things seemed to go well. They were very much in love with each other, and they got along well with each other's families, which is such a huge undertaking when you're first starting out as a couple. Mm -hmm, That's an added bonus for sure. A couple of years after getting married, they had their first son. And then in a couple more years, they welcomed their second. Rachel had a difficult time during her pregnancies, having to be hospitalized during the end of each one of them. It was around this same time that Joe's career was starting to take off. While Rachel was home taking care of herself and the two young children, Joe was given a management position in the outdoor advertising company Vicom. This new promotion was the beginning of the end of Joe and Rachel's fairy tale. Oh no, his job? Well, it's not really his job, but it's what his job sets him up to be able to do. Hmm. His job was to coordinate the company's posters division, which put ads on the sides of buses and in train stations. He also had to check up on the work of his colleagues and his employees. This involved going to the stations and bus depots to make sure that the posters were properly placed. He enjoyed the freedom of this new position. Traveling to other towns, getting out of the house. This is something that Joe really liked to do. He liked to be an adventurer. 
there were friends of the couple that started to notice Joe's overnight absences for the supposed bus inspections that he was doing and started questioning the validity of them. Oh, so is he finding girlfriends in different towns and Mm -hmm. stations? Yeah. Aww. He starts to use his job as an excuse to explore relationships outside of his marriage. Oh, dirt big already. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, his young wife with their two young children is at home waiting for him. Yep. But at the time, Rachel's suspicions didn't seem raised at all. In 2003, with their growing family, the couple started looking for a more suitable area to raise their kids. They were living in the city of Dublin, and they wanted to move out to the country, where they had more space to raise their growing boys. They bought a three-bedroom bungalow in Knoll, a nice, quiet, family-oriented village, just 28 kilometers outside of the busier Dublin area. Sounds perfect, to be honest. Yeah, the little town just looks so quaint. Oh, And their little house, it had this little picket fence around it. It just looked idealistic. So Rachel's thinking she's living her best life, not knowing that her husband is stepping out on her. Mm-hmm. And when I say they looked for a house, it really wasn't them. There were rumors that Joe took very little interest in this house hunting. He was already giving Rachel some signs that he was not interested in the life that she was building. Even though when they were dating, he had told her all these things that this is what he wanted. Yeah, because he was stepping out. Mm-hmm. It was actually Rachel and her father that found the little fixer-upper house and then presented it to Joe. Rachel would spend her time fixing up this little house for them, doing a lot of the DIY projects by herself or with the help of her brothers and her father. Aw, she sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. These were some of the first outward signs of a fracture in the couple's relationship. Rachel threw herself into the DIY renovations and making friends in the new area. She became an Avon and Tupperware rep on top of her one-day-a-week job working at a solicitor's office. She started throwing barbecues to make friends and really started focusing on integrating into the community. Both Joe and Rachel started playing ball. This time, though, at Joe's suggestion, it was on different teams. What? Mm -hmm. So previous to their move, they had always played on the same ball team together. They loved playing baseball. Both of them were very active. Even after their marriage, Rachel played hockey and baseball for quite some time. Huh. But when they moved to this new community, Joe suggested that they start on different ball teams. Yeah, that's totally suspicious. Because like I know you play baseball with your husband. Can you imagine him saying to you, let's play on different teams this year, honey? Well, he used the argument that if they played on different nights, then they could avoid having to pay a babysitter to watch the boys. And so they could kind of swap out. And Rachel bought this excuse. He kind of tricked her into thinking it was a good idea. Huh. So was he just not wanting to spend time with her or he was wanting those opportunities when she's playing ball that he can go have his affairs? I think it's that he didn't want to spend the time with her. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. sad. Rachel became more vocal with her closest friends about her concerns that her husband was pulling away from her. There's some debate on how much Rachel suspected of her husband's indiscretions. Some say that she was just this really private person that didn't open up a lot with others. And some say that there were things that were brought to her attention but that she would just kind of laugh them off. She probably just couldn't bring herself to believe that this sweet man that had pursued her so avidly and had been so attentive to her during the early parts of their relationship was now stepping out on her. Yeah, that would be a hard realization to come to. Mm -hmm. But stepping out on her was exactly what Joe was doing with several women. Ugh, I don't understand guys like that when a wife isn't enough and one mistress isn't enough. You have to have several? Come on. The most serious one that he met was at a Viacom function in March of 2003. Nikki Pelly was an advertising executive that caught his attention. 
They were friendly to each other during their first meeting, and then they parted ways. Joe began a relationship with another woman, Barbara, until she found out that he was married. So did he eventually start dating Nikki? Yeah. In January of 2004, Joe and Nikki met up again at Barge Pub on the Grand Canal in Dublin. Okay. And did he ever date multiple women at the same time outside of his wife? I didn't track all of his indiscretions that closely to tell if they overlapped. But it did sound like he was quite the ladies' man at the bars. And that's why he enjoyed going out with his all-guys team to the bars after he played so that he could play it up with the ladies without the onlooking eyes of his wife. What a pig. After spending three weeks sending texts and flirtatious messages, Nikki and Joe went out to lunch and then went to the cinema to see a movie. It was only three short weeks later that they began an intimate affair. Oh, and did she know he was married? Yeah, she did know. But Joe was telling Nikki a lie, too. Let me guess. We're breaking up. We're getting a divorce. Along those lines. <laughs> he was telling Nikki all about how horrid his wife was, that Rachel and him were having troubles, and they were pretty much effectively separated for over a year. And they even slept in separate bedrooms. Oh. So he's telling her all of these things. Which were all lies. Or were they sleeping in separate bedrooms and having huge problems and were separated? Joe is definitely pulling away from Rachel at this time. And it's around this same time that he's telling Nikki all these things that he makes it even more pronounced in his marriage. So at home, Joe did start sleeping in a separate bedroom. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And Rachel was like, what's up with this? And he would just tell her that, oh, when he was returning home late from work or when he was leaving early to go to work, he didn't want to disturb her. He knew she needed her sleep. And so he was trying to play it off as being the good guy. That That's why he was sleeping in a separate bedroom. Oh, the nerve, honestly. I'm such a great guy. I don't want to disturb you. You're up all the night with the kids. I'll just sleep over here and sacrifice. Yeah. Instead of saying, mm, I'm getting it on the side and I don't want to sleep with you anymore. Yeah. And it seems like the more his relationship progressed with Nikki, the more he pulled away from Rachel. So he's actually developing feelings for Nikki then. Yes. It went beyond just that physical intimacy. Okay. Joe would even start to tell Rachel that he was going to spend some nights at the office and sleep on a cot because it was more convenient to get to his ball practices the two nights a week that he had them. Really, he was spending every Tuesday and Saturday night at Nikki's house. Oh, that's a lame excuse. Mm -hmm. He comes off as trying to be this really smart guy, but he wasn't overly smart. No, no one's believing that, Joe. Well, Rachel kind of did. Oh, so I just feel so bad for her. Well, yeah, well, and it's different when you're in the thick of it mm -hmm. and you're wanting your marriage to work out. You've got these little kids. She's got her hands full. And so I'm not passing any judgment because I can see how she would just be desperate to be fixing things and, and not want to make waves in their marriage and make it even worse. And that seems like exactly what she wanted to do was just make things peaceful. Rachel did start to feel even more rejected by her husband, and she confided in a friend that she couldn't remember the last time Joe had even kissed her. Rachel tried to plan date nights, getting all dressed up and hiring a babysitter, but Joe just blew her off. And sometimes he wouldn't even cancel on her. He just wouldn't show up. Oh, that's so hurtful. Mm -hmm. Rachel also confided that Joe wasn't interested in sex anymore. She thought that there might be something medically wrong with him. But at the same time, Joe was telling all of his buddies at ball and at work that Rachel was holding out on him and that he wasn't getting any at home. 
Yeah, so then he could make an excuse for why he's stepping out. Mm -hmm. And the sad part about all of that, and I mean, I can't speak for Rachel, but I'm assuming that this was taking a big blow to her self-esteem. When you don't feel wanted by the person who's supposed to love you the most, it's devastating. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of gaslighting that Joe does to further perpetuate that. Through all of this, Rachel remained loyal to Joe. She still loved him very much. She wouldn't say anything to her family about her suspicions or about what she was going through in her marriage because she didn't want to jade her family's relationship with Joe. Wow. He does not deserve her. Nope, he did not. Even with her suspicions, she's still taking the higher road. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he had such a close relationship with her family. Yeah, which just speaks to her character. She really sounded like a queen. Hmm. In June 2004, Rachel was investigated by social services. What? A report was made anonymously and claimed that she was being rough with her two young sons. Who would do that? It was a completely bogus claim. Friends say that she was always a loving and involved mother. And social services came out, they did their investigation, and they didn't find anything suspicious. And they closed the file almost immediately. From four emails between Joe and his sister Anne, it was later found out that his mother was the person to call in the complaint at Joe's insistence. Joe's mom? Mm Mm-hmm. Who got along really well with Rachel and could actually see for her own self that Rachel was good with the kids? Yep. But Joe convinced his mom to call in the complaint. (laughs) Oh, that makes me irate. Honestly, little mama's boy is going to manipulate his mom into doing something that she knew was not truthful. Mm -hmm. And this just further undermined Rachel's confidence. And would have made Joe feel like, oh, yeah, it's like egging him on. Mm -hmm. I just find this so hurtful that he purposely did this to make her feel less of a person. It was an anonymous complaint. It only came out after the trial that it was actually his mom that did it. And he perpetuated the investigation. So this whole time, she's actually thinking neighbors or somebody at school are seeing her do things and thinking that she's a bad mom. And what a gamble on Joe's part. What if their children had been taken away? Did Mm -hmm. he not even care about his kids? No, he very much cared about his kids, but he's trying to set the scene for something else. Oh. So there's these four emails that he sends back and forth with his sister that occurred right after social services did their investigation of the family. So it wasn't just Rachel that they came in and looked at. They also looked at Joe, but the complaint was strictly about Rachel, but they had to investigate the whole family. Yeah, of course. So in these emails, the names that he calls Rachel are absolutely disgusting. Not names that any husband should be calling their wife. Or likely any woman for that matter. Mm -hmm. But it is very clear that he's plotting to build a case for him to have sole custody when he leaves her. He also reveals his fear of being reduced to Mr. Weekend custody in the eyes of the state after the separation. Talking about the social services investigation, he wrote, quote, Yesterday was my first personal indication of how much I will lose if I don't try different angles. After all, I'm only a secondary caregiver. Hmm. So in the investigation, it had come out that Rachel was the primary caregiver. She was the one that stayed home with the kids. She was the one that provided the majority of the care because he left super early in the morning to go to his job. He was spending out late nights at Bell. And there were two weeks of the night that he wasn't even bothering to come home. And Ah. so in the report, social services had labeled Rachel as the primary caregiver. 
And this just speaks to his selfishness because he's not even thinking about what's best for my sons. Oh, no. He is completely selfish. Yeah. He's just thinking of, I didn't like how I was raised. I want to leave Rachel, but I want to make sure that I get the kids and she doesn't. And not even that she can be Mrs. Weekend because he's wanting to just get full custody, it sounds like. Yeah. He doesn't want to share it with her at all. Oh, which again is not what would be in the best interest of his sons. No, he is completely all about himself. Ugh. Joe admitted to his sister that his wife repulsed him and that their marriage was completely over. He wrote, me plus Rachel plus marriage equals over. In these emails, he also makes the statement, quote, by all means, drag her fat butt outside and kick it into the middle of next week, but not in front of the boys. And don't leave any marks that can or will be used against you in a court of law. What a low life. It just shows that he wasn't above using violence as long as nobody got caught. Right. And this is all occurring in the summer of 2004. Joe's attitudes towards his wife had become toxic. He would berate her for her weight and purposely say things to undermine her confidence and create insecurity. He continued to pull away more and more. His disdain for his wife was growing more apparent to everyone around them. In a text to Nikki on September 5th at 10.33 p.m., Joe texted, quote, Ditto my beautiful bride-to-be, XXX, Ugh. indicating that he had the clear intention of leaving his wife to marry his mistress. Insert puke emoji. Honestly, and it's so sad that he's turned his loving wife, who has done nothing to harm him, in fact, was trying to protect him by not telling people about how he's treating her, and he's villainizing her. He's taking all of this toxic energy and focusing it on her when it's you, Joe, you're the problem. Yeah, so say he did fall out of love with Rachel. He didn't want to be with her anymore. Then just leave. Yeah, and why be so vindictive? He's just cold-hearted. He does not care who he hurts. So cruel. Mm -hmm. On October 3rd, 2004, Rachel and Joe argued about their relationship. The blow-up had occurred because the children had talked about their daddy's nice friend, Nikki, to <gasps> Rachel. He had the kids around his girlfriend? Mm -hmm. Could you imagine hearing your children talk about the mistress? No. He interjected Nikki into his children's lives. And there were several texts that he sent back and forth with her. Like saying, hey, just me and the boys at the beach. We're just hanging out, trying to create a family with just him, the boys, and Nikki. Wow. Mm -hmm. According to Jackie, Rachel's friend, Rachel had previously confronted Joe and told him that she would get a divorce if he didn't give up his late night inspections that he always called them. Yeah, but we all know what he was inspecting. Yeah. It wasn't bus signs. No, definitely not. There are some reports that say that it was Joe who gave Rachel the ultimatum that night, all because he had been given one by Nikki. But like, what is even his ultimatum? Like, what does he want her to change or else? He's saying, I'm leaving you and you'll leave me with the boys. Or else what? Yeah, I don't know. Or else what? You can shove it, Joe. But the whole reason that he gave Rachel an ultimatum was because Nikki had told him she was going to leave him by November if he hadn't ended things with his wife. Oh, this is getting so messy. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what was said during that argument, but we do know that Joe wanted custody of his boys and that he did not want to become a weekend dad. Joe wanted it all. He didn't want to lose anything. We also know that Rachel actually was a loving mother, not one who would give up her boys without a fight. And she had been the primary caregiver and hadn't been the one stepping out. 
and would be the one more likely to be awarded custody if there was a divorce. Joe didn't like the options that he was presented when Rachel gave him the ultimatum that he had to give up his mistress or she was going to leave with the boys. Joe came up with an entirely different ending. At 5.40 on Monday, October 4th, 2004, the morning after having this huge fight with Rachel, Joe left his bungalow to go to the gym. On the way to the gym, he stops off to fill up his navy blue Fiat and gets a call from Nikki, the woman that he has been having an affair with for the last nine months. They talked for 28 minutes on the phone that morning, and it would be the first of eight calls, along with 10 other text messages sent that day. Between Joe and Nikki. Mm-hmm. Joe eventually arrives at his office at Viacom around 7.45 after going to the gym with a buddy. And there he makes plans with a colleague through email to meet after lunch around 2 p.m., telling him that he would be out of cell coverage most of the morning. According to CCTV footage, Joe left the office at 8.07 that morning. He had told people that he was going to the CIE depot in Broadstone, a short distance away from his office. He was going there to do some bus inspections. Instead, CCTV footage shows his car passing Murphy's Quarry near his own home that morning at 9.10, just a few minutes after Rachel had left the house to take the kids to school, nowhere near the depot in Broadstone where he was supposed to be. Oh no, so he's going to go into the house and wait for her to get back? Mm-hmm. Oh. Based on that same CCTV footage that saw Joe's car passing near the house, Rachel's car is seen around 9.45 returning home from dropping the boys off at their school. It is believed that Joe was lying in wait in their bedroom and attacked her almost immediately as she entered the house around 9.45. And police actually surmise that he called her name out to get her to come back into the bedroom. Oh my goodness. And she wouldn't have been suspicious to come home and see his car. She might have been curious, why is he home? Mm -hmm. And then to come in and have him say, Rachel, come into the bedroom here for a second. She wouldn't have thought he was going to try and end her life. No, she might have even been a little bit hopeful. They had just had this huge fight the night before. He had always took off early to work. He was always at work and here he is showing up. So maybe she was even hopeful being like, oh, maybe he wants to talk things through. We just had this fight. Maybe he wants to make up. Oh, true. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really sad to think of that. It's so sad. Rachel was found with her car keys underneath of her. Presumably they were still in her hand when she was attacked. That's how quickly it happened when she came home. She didn't have time to put them down. Nope. Joe's vehicle is seen leaving the area at 959. In total, Joe's car was caught on 11 different CCTV cameras that day, tracking his movements. In that short time frame, he had used his powerful size to beat his wife. Rachel received four to nine blows to the head. The weapon was suspected to be a dumbbell that was missing from the couple's gym set. (gasps) So his six foot five frame is using a dumbbell to smack his wife with. Mm -hmm. From her injuries, it was evident that Rachel had tried to defend herself, but that her wrist had been twisted as she was initially struck on her head. It sounds like he had grabbed her by the wrist and twisted her wrist and held her close to him as he struck her head. Oh, so she couldn't get away. She then received more blows as she lay helpless on the bedroom floor. He's a monster. How can you do this to the woman you once loved and who birthed your children? They love her. Yeah. And so even if you don't like her, just by the extension of your children's love, you would want her to be protected. Well, you would think, but not in dirtbag world. Well, dirtbag Joe gets so much more worse. Oh. 
At 10.07, Joe is back on his phone sending messages. To Nikki. Nope. This time to Rachel. He sends a text to her that reads, quote, You and the boys sleep okay? Wish Jackie a happy birthday for me, please. XXX. No way. So he's trying to cover his tracks. Yeah. He's trying to trick everybody into thinking that he's still this loving husband. And how cold and calculated is that? He's trying to set up an alibi just minutes after beating in his wife's head. And he's doing this even from the home. Like, does he not think they're going to be able to track where those texts were sent? He doesn't know that they can do that. And ultimately, that's what catches him. That seals the deal. Mm -hmm. Later, Joe would claim that he was by the bus depot in Philsboro when he sent this text message. But his phone wouldn't ping from that location until 1038 that morning. Instead, this text had pinged off the tower closest to their home. And it's just such an eerie thought to think of him standing next to his wife's lifeless body, sending her a text just to try to cover his own tracks. Yeah, he had taken off and he was a few miles down the road, but right near their house. He was already sending this text. Wow. He left several more voicemails on Rachel's and their home phone that day between 11.52 and 1.45, trying to establish a believable story. The next message from Joe was at 11.52, saying, quote, Hiya, Rach. It's just 12 o'clock. Ringing to see where you are. Obviously, you're just in Jackie's chewing the fat and not listening to messages from me. Give us a shout. Let me know how your morning's been. All the usual sort of stuff. Don't forget to wish Jackie a happy birthday. Okay, goodbye. The next message at 118, he sends saying, quote, Hi, Rach. It's only I just got a call from Helen at Montessori. She says you haven't picked up Adam. Was Sarah meant to pick him up or something? Give us a shout. I'm going to try the home phone. You've no doubt left your phone at home or in the back of the car or something. Helen has to go and pick up her kids so she can't stay there. So if you get back and she's not there, don't panic. I will try the home phone. Thanks. Oh, my goodness. A third message is sent at 124. This one says, quote, Rach, this is Joe. I tried your number. Now I don't know how many times. You're not in Jackie's and you're not in your mom's. I'm now really, really worried about you. Please call me. Please call. This is not funny. This is not like you. Oh, I hate when a murderer does this. Uh Uh-huh. Trying to act all concerned and like they know nothing when he literally just murdered her hours before. Yep. The last message he sends her is at 145. It reads, Rach, it's me again. I'm just about at the M50. I've spoken to your mother. She's going to pop on out. Please ring. I've been crying. You have me worried. I don't know. Talk to me, please. All of these are a drastic change from the text messages and emails that he had been sending her previously. Before, he was calling Rachel derogatory names, and now he's all this, like, lovey-dovey husband pretending to be all worried, oh, I'm crying about you. Yeah, give me a break, you vile, disgusting worm. So do you remember the message where he said Helen had called him Mm -hmm. and let him know that Rachel hadn't picked up her son? Right. He did receive a call at 110 from his son's crush telling him that Rachel hadn't been there to pick up their son at 1230 like arranged. Joe puts on this huge act. After making all of these calls, knowing full well, his true intention was just to stage a whole bunch of messages and that Rachel would never really hear them. He called his mother-in-law and asked her to go check on Rachel. He said that he was going to go to the Montessori school, Tots United, to pick up their son. He sent Rachel's mother, Rose, to view his handiwork. 
knowing the kind of sight that she would see her daughter's lifeless body in. That is beyond cruel. Could you imagine a mother walking in on her child that way? No. I told you, he is just heartless. And he purposely did this. He could have called anybody, but he called Rachel's mom. And she lived over 20 minutes away, so there were a lot of people much closer. But he purposely called her mom. Did he just want the drama of it? I think he just got off on causing pain. Wow. And he would have known that Rachel would not have wanted her mom to find her that way too. Mm -hmm. So maybe a final little disrespect towards Rachel herself. Maybe. Rose had been cooking for several of her children. They were all over at their parents' house helping their dad do some maintenance on the house. And she immediately thought that there was something wrong when she got this call from Joe because she knew her daughter. She knew that Rachel wouldn't forget to pick up her son. No. Rose arrived at the house and noticed that the patio door was open and that the curtains had been drawn. People would later comment that this was unusual for the home to have the curtains drawn. And there were a lot of them that picked up on this. Huh. So it was obviously very unusual. Mm-hmm. When Rose entered the house, the kitchen tap was running and the house had been ransacked. As she ventured further into the house, she found her daughter in her bedroom. Her head completely pulverized. Rachel was completely unrecognizable. (gasps) No. Mm -hmm. Over her right ear, there was a five-inch gash where her skull had been split open by the sheer force of the blunt object, exposing her brain. Oh my goodness, Melissa. That's how she found her daughter. And nothing would erase that image from her mind. No. And she's gone on to do several interviews after, saying that that image is with her always. And he had made it try to look like a burglary? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Joe also called several of Rachel's friends to fringe concern, asking them if they had seen her because she hadn't picked up her son. All of Rachel's friends knew that this was not like her. And so some of them even went to the house to look for her. Her best friend, Jackie, she was a nurse and she had just gotten off the night shift. This is the Jackie that he says it was her birthday that day. When she arrived at the house, Joe was actually there. He had gotten there by that time. And he sent her into the house, down the hallway to the last bedroom on the left to see if she could do anything for Rachel. Again, Joe knew that it was already much too late for this, but he still wanted to play up this act. And so he sent her best friend down the hallway to see what she looked like. And what do you mean what she could do for her? Like try to save her? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, he just was getting his jollies off on having everybody see her. Yeah. Yeah. And the reactions that they'd have. That's right. And I tried to give this dirtbag some benefit of the doubt saying that maybe he was just trying to play his part. Maybe he wasn't being as mean spirited as I'm thinking. Maybe he was just trying to play the distraught husband and he thought that this is what somebody would do if they didn't know what was there. But his actions even later tell me even more so that he just wanted to see other people hurt over Rachel's death. He gave no thought to how all of this would traumatize other people. He had even tried to enter the house with his youngest son. What? Mm Mm-hmm. No. Knowing that his youngest son would have seen his mother. Thankfully, a neighbor stopped him because Rose had come out as he was coming in and they had saw how distraught she was. And so Rose and this neighbor were like, no, you don't take him in there. Even if he hadn't seen his mom, even just walking in the house and seeing it all ransacked and then finding out that his mom was murdered, that would be traumatizing enough. Mm -hmm. You don't really care about your children then, Joe. No, it doesn't seem like that at all. Joe, still keeping up this facade that he is this distraught husband, he enters the house 
and he cries out, Rachel, what did you do? And tries to put the blame on her, thinking that she's done something to herself. Obviously, her injuries do not indicate anything like that. No. Joe called an ambulance, and during his conversation with them, he's sure to tell them about all the CDs and blood all over the place. He tries to set the scene that Rachel's murder was a robbery gone wrong. He had overturned a table and pulled drawers apart, dumping their contents all over the house. As police and the ambulance were arriving at the scene, so were Rachel's family members. Word spread so quickly. Family members came running to the house. Her parents and friends, her siblings, they all gathered there. Rachel had been loved by so many people. Both paramedics and police noted that the state of the house was suspicious to them right away. It didn't really look like a burglary. First, there were obvious signs that someone had ransacked the place, which was an indication that a robbery had taken place. But on further inspection, it really didn't add up. There was a large sum of money, 840 euro, left sitting out on the open that hadn't been taken. Rachel had just done a collection for her Avon stuff. Mm. And so she had the cash with her, she had left it out, and nobody had taken it. And people forget that police have a trained eye when it comes to this stuff. You can try and stage it and look like you want it to, but more often than not, they can usually indicate that pretty quickly in the investigation. And that's what these police officers did. They went in and even the paramedics were picking up on like, yeah, this is supposed to look like a robbery, but they don't dump out cutlery drawers. That doesn't make any sense. What's in a cutlery drawer that they're looking for? And really, as the investigation continued, they didn't find anything of real value missing. And what had been taken was soon found only 500 meters from the house just a few days later. A camera bag was found in a culvert near the house and was thought to have been very suspicious and not going along with the robbery story because instead of being thrown into the culvert, it had been placed there. So nothing in the camera bag was broken. Oh, because he wanted to get it back in one piece. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, too, if this was just like a robbery... The way that she was murdered was overkill. That indicated passion and anger and a more personal interaction. Exactly. The dramatic amount of force that was used to kill Rachel was just that, overkill. And that usually implicates a lot of emotion. And it's just not found in a robbery gone wrong. No. Detective Pat Murray later described the scene by saying, quote, you could see that there was severe force used to inflict that. So that poor woman had no chance whatsoever. Absolutely none. It was savage, cold, just unbelievable. And this is a seasoned police officer trying to explain this murder scene. Well, if she wasn't even recognizable, I cannot even imagine how horrific that was. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this for a while, and I still can't understand how one human being can do something like this to another. Let alone to somebody that you once loved. Yeah, During the investigation, there were no stranger's fingerprints or DNA found at the house, only that of close family friends and relatives. There was one unknown blood sample that came back that was collected from the washing machine, but it was eventually traced back to Rachel's biological brother, who had been injured while he was at the house doing some renovations. Rachel had reconnected with her birth mom and half-siblings in her late teens and had developed really good relationships with all of her siblings. So her brother had come to the house to help them build a deck and he had injured himself while he was there. The blood fell down on the side of the washing machine and had never been noticed. And so when they thoroughly went through the house, they found this blood stain. And originally it was one that they didn't think had belonged to any of the family members, but they linked it back to him. 
So what police did find that was interesting was two different blood spatter patterns on the walls that were layered, indicating that Rachel had been struck and then struck again multiple times a short time later as she lay on the bedroom floor. So they had this pattern of she was hit on the head originally, and then it looked like there had been a few minutes that had passed and then she was hit again. So they had these two distinct patterns. Hmm. As police investigated the scene, Joe stood off to the side of the rest of Rachel's family. He just didn't meld in with that group. And later, he left the family and took the boys to his mother's house. When the guardie caught up with him at his mom's house to interview him more, he comes down the stairs having just had a shower. The clothes he had taken off were in the washing machine already, thanks to the help of his mom. Oh, that mom. But if you're trying to take care of your son, she's not thinking that he's done anything wrong. And so she just wants to freshen him up, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, trying to take care maybe. But why was he even allowed to leave? It's often the husband or significant (laughs) other. Why did the police not even detain him then? Well, it sounds like the family was just so distraught. And there were so many people at the crime scene that they were just telling people, you know, go somewhere else. But the husband, he shouldn't have been allowed to just go somewhere else. It sounds a little bit bizarre. Like you would think that the person who discovered her, so her mom, and the husband should have been held back to be processed. They had done an initial interview with key people at the scene. And then because the boys were there, it sounded like the police let them go. And they're like, okay, tell us where you're going to be at and we'll come and see you then. Hmm. Joe had previously been asked at the scene if Rachel might have been having an affair And he had answered, no, neither one of us were having an affair. (laughs) This had kind of caught the guardie's attention. So he was asked again about affairs. And again, Joe denies. The detectives take down Joe's phone number and confirm that he has had his phone the whole day. Joe originally gave Rachel's number the first two times he was asked for his number, which I thought was a bit odd. Hmm. So when he left to go to his mother's house, the detective collected his phone number and Joe had actually given them Rachel's phone number. Which I guess they could explain like, oh, he was so distraught. It was just the first number on his mind. That's right. The detective then asks him for his shoes that he had worn into the house earlier that day because they needed to make it a comparison to the footprints that they had found around the crime scene because they know he had went up to the body. He'd actually moved a box around the body as well. After a long time upstairs at his mother's house, he comes down with a pair of boots that he claimed to be wearing that day. Just before the detectives leave, Joe is asked one final time, are you having an affair? And he answers a little more truthfully this time. He says, quote, I did have an affair, but it's over. Things were rocky between myself and Rachel, but things are fine now, Joe tells the police. Uh, No, they're not. You just murdered your wife. Mm -hmm. He actually does tell them his mistress's name. He lets police know that he had previously had an affair with Nikki. But he was still in a relationship with her, was he not? Oh, absolutely. And I don't know what he was thinking because police go right to Nikki's house. Yeah. When police talk to Nikki, she tries to play down the affair, despite there being clear evidence that the two have been in frequent contact that day with each other. She later claims that it was Joe that told her to do this. By the time of Rachel's funeral, there are some big suspicions for the police mounting against Joe. Things aren't adding up. He's lied about his affair. The crime scene isn't adding up. But there's no concrete evidence to tie him to the scene. And do you think Nikki had any idea that he was going to do this that day? There's nothing that indicates in any of the documents that she did. But I do have a hard time believing with that much contact during the day that she didn't know something was going on. 
Yeah. I wonder what her initial reaction was to find out that Rachel had been brutally murdered Mm -hmm. in her home. Nikki goes on to stand by Joe's claims that he's innocent. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. So she's a dirtbag too. Yeah, I think so. Joe's behavior just continues to get more bizarre for an innocent man. At the funeral, along with other mourners, Joe places a five-page note inside his wife's coffin to be buried with. Ugh. The message on this note would later be revealed to read, at the end, forgive me. Two words, one sentence, but I will say them forever. Joe believed that this letter would never get read and probably felt that it was a safe place to express some remorse. It was the only time he would ever do so. Do you think he even actually felt it? I don't believe that he thought anybody was going to find it. So if he was going to be remorseful, I think that he would have felt this was a safe place to do so. Because they don't find this note until they exhume her body years later. Okay. And he was probably caught up in the collective mourning of his wife. Yeah, that's true. And maybe along with all that mourning, he was feeling a little bit of guilt. Because Joe had the audacity to give a speech at the funeral about how Rachel had accomplished all that she had wanted to do in her life. Mm-hmm. So it's okay because she did everything she wanted to. We That's can be right. happy for her. Yeah. And he tried to give this justification that she had lived her life to the fullest. Ugh, she hadn't even lived half her life likely. No, it was just days before her 31st birthday. Oh. She was only 30 years old. I'm sure that there were a lot of other things that she still wanted to do. Like watch her kids grow up. <laughs> so yeah. many things. Definitely. But this did make me wonder if for him, it was some sick way of justifying his actions to her family without them knowing what he was telling them. Mm -hmm. Like, see, this is okay that this happened because of this and this. Right. Let's look on the bright side. At the gathering after the funeral, Joe made joking comments about how he didn't understand why the police weren't looking in the water for the murder weapon. If he had been the murderer, that's where he would have tossed the weapon to get rid of that evidence. It's not actually in there, is it? They never find it. Oh, I thought he was like wanting them to find it. No, he doesn't want to be caught. And Joe actually never confesses. To this day, he proclaims his innocence. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That is more frustrating when they won't just admit it. Yeah. When police released his house back to him, Joe's behavior continues to be bizarre for an innocent man. He declined having the house professionally cleaned. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Because he didn't want anyone to find anything suspicious. Nope, that's not it. Instead, he wanted the blood left where it was sat. No way. Joe invited Rachel's family back to the house just two days after the funeral, telling them that he felt this great peace about being in the house again, and that they too might be comforted by being in the place where Rachel had lived. To Rachel's parents and her brother and his wife, he said, quote, It might work for you guys as well. So he invites them down. When they got there, he gathered them around the answering machine to listen to the voicemails of him calling the house the day of the murder. What? Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to hear that, Joe. He just wanted to prove more. Like, look, see how concerned I was for her. Oh, my goodness. How about all the other letters and things that you stated about your wife in such a vile way? Well, he doesn't think that any of those are ever going to be found. What he does next just to me speaks to how heartless he is. He walked them through, step by step, what he claimed he believed had happened to Rachel. This isn't a sideshow, buddy. He creates a sideshow of it. Joe led them to the bedroom 
and got down on one knee on the bedroom floor, pointing to the top of a six-foot-long, three-foot-wide hole in the carpet that had been saturated with their daughter's blood and said, quote, This is where her head was. She was lying here with her feet towards the door. What? Then he brought his arm up behind his head, his fingers curled around an imaginary blunt instrument, and imitated the killer striking blows as he watched her parents' reactions. He's just like openly trying to traumatize them. Mm -hmm. How did someone not tell him to go fly a kite? I don't know. But her parents were so close to him that up until this point, they hadn't had any suspicions about him. What he does next is even more cruel. He then showed no emotion at all as he pointed out the bloodstains on the walls to Rachel's family and proposed that his wife's killer was probably cleaning up in the bathroom when he had heard her choking on her own blood and returned to finish the job. Unknown to Rachel's parents at this time, Joe had just reenacted exactly how the state pathologist believed Rachel would have died. Rachel had inhaled a lot of blood into her lungs when she struggled to breathe after that first beating. So she would have felt like she was drowning. Mm -hmm. From the blood entering her lungs, she would have made gurgling sounds, like the sounds that Joe had described to her parents. What a dummy. The second attack was also collaborated by the two distinct blood spatter that the police had seen on the walls during the investigation. Wow. And he did this all just to see their reactions. Yeah, it was like it wasn't enough for him to actually commit this murder. He wanted to kind of like relive it and horrify and traumatize as many people as he could from that. Mm -hmm. He wasn't happy with just one murder victim. Not at all. He just needed to hurt everybody. And that wasn't the end of Joe's sideshow. Three weeks later, Joe would begin taking friends and reporters through the house, walking them through the murder and how he believed it all went down. This became known as The Tour. He would then pose for photos sitting at the kitchen table, looking like the forlorn, widowed husband, all the while showing off Rachel's wedding ring that he was wearing on his pinky finger. Joe rarely passed up an opportunity to play the grieving widower for the media. And then, as media attention around the case grew, he craved more attention, trying to bring his wife's killer to justice. He appeared on The Late Late Show on October 22nd, a popular primetime TV show in Ireland. The despicable Joe lied to Rose, Rachel's mom, to get her to appear with him on the show, telling her that the guardie had said that it would help catch the killer. Oh my goodness. And of course, she's going to do whatever she can to try and help her daughter. Mm -hmm. Joe came across very poorly, as he outlines that he believes his wife was killed that day by the robber because Rachel could identify them. It was someone she knew. All the while, Rose is sitting there looking very uncomfortable next to her son-in-law. Rose has done several interviews after that night telling people how she was a bucket of nerves sitting beside someone she was beginning to feel had murdered her daughter. Oh my goodness. Joe, on the other hand, didn't seem to be nervous at all. He scoffed down sandwiches in the green room before the show and then afterwards had the show's limousine driver drop him off at Nikki's house. No way. Uh Uh-huh. All the time, he was still denying that he was having an affair. (laughs) But, okay, I'm on this show about my wife's murder, but could you just swing by and drop me off at my girlfriend's house on the way back? Yeah, because I'm this grieving widower. Ugh. Some of Rachel's family were getting very suspicious of Joe. Her father, on the other hand, was having a hard time believing that this man that he had given his daughter to was her murderer. Well, and as a fellow man and husband, it's probably even that much more unfathomable that a man could do this Mm -hmm. to his wife. 
Sadly, her dad kept offending Joe, saying that it was just the shock that was causing all of this odd behavior. Huh. But these odd behaviors were not going unnoticed by the guardie, but they were still waiting on concrete evidence to tie him to the scene. They bring in Rachel's best friend Jackie to question her. And although Jackie is reluctant to share her friend's secrets, police learn about the couple's fight the night before her murder. Police also learn about Joe's odd behavior just a few days after the murder when he called Jackie up and asked her to go out to the movies. What? Mm-hmm. While out with her, Joe had told her of a dream that he had had about murdering Rachel. But Jackie had just thought that he was just having nightmares. Okay. Like in a regular setting, that's not like so crazy. But under these circumstances, that is wild. Mm-hmm. Police also uncover all of those unflattering emails that Joe had sent to his sister. Good. While police found all of this very interesting, again, it wasn't proof of anything concrete. On several different occasions, they bring him in for questioning, but they never are able to keep him in custody because of the lack of physical evidence. The relationship between the guards and Joe become very hostile. After being brought in on March 4th, 2006, for questioning yet again, he leaves the station, giving the guards the finger. And I think it's good to explain that there's some past history between Joe's family and the guardie that might explain this escalation and hostility more than just being accused of killing his wife. Interestingly, Joe's maternal uncle, Christy Lynch, was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1976. He had confessed to the murder of Vera Cooney and Sandy Mount. He had been questioned for over 22 hours and made a forced confession. Inquest into the Guardi's actions brought about his release after spending almost four years in prison. Wow. This, I think, would have created a lot of the attitude of distrust for the Guardi and the court systems that Joe's family, especially his mom, expressed during all of Joe's trials. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, it's happening again. Our mm-hmm. family's cursed. And I think that's why they so readily believe that Joe was innocent. Yeah, because they had this hostility towards the police, mm-hmm. or guardy as they are referred to in Ireland. <laughs> That's right. Blood was found on the inside of Joe's left shoe, but the forensics examiners had said that it was inconclusive if the blood had been transferred there during the murder, or if the transfer had happened while he had moved a box after the crime. Mm. So again, they thought they had this concrete evidence that showed that he was there during the crime, and the forensics just couldn't connect him. There were five interviews done with Joe's co-worker that was Joe's alibi at work that day. Originally, he had told police that he was with Joe that whole morning. But when the CCTV footage came back, he then changed his story and said that he could only confirm it after a certain point. And so this kind of explains why it took the guardie so long to get some evidence against him. Mm-hmm. And shame on that co-worker for lying about the alibi. Like, you're impeding an investigation when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. He later says that he just got his times wrong, but mm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Usually you know if you've spent the whole morning with someone or not. Right. The CCTV footage and the cell phone tracking that were provided by Joe's cellular provider, O2, all prove that Joe had lied about his alibi. And this was huge in cracking the case. The cinching evidence came in October 2006, when a friend of Nikki Pelly comes forward and tells the guardie that Nikki had confided in her that she had been lying to the police. Nikki was arrested for withholding evidence and agrees to testify that Joe had told her he would murder Rachel if he could get away with it. This, along with everything else, was deemed enough by the DPP to take the case to trial in front of a jury. 
So finally, two years after murdering his wife, Joe O'Reilly was arrested in his mother's kitchen on October 20th for the murder of his wife, Rachel. And no one was really that shocked. No. And is it bad for me to say that I'm really happy he was arrested in his little mommy's kitchen? She was still taking care of him. The trial started on June 25th, 2007. With all of the tours and interviews that Joe gave to the vast media coverage of the case, the trial was a media circus. It captured the attention of the whole country. When all the media was traced back to its original source, 30% of it could be traced directly back to Joe's interactions with the media. Yeah, he was just craving that. Mm -hmm. Even going on a TV show. During the trial, it was revealed that Joe had obtained Rachel's death certificate to apply for a 194,000 euro insurance policy and to settle his 240,000 euro mortgage on his house. Hmm. That's a good amount of change to start life over. Yeah, hence his little pot of gold at the end of the bloody rainbow. Mm-hmm. Joe did not take the stand during his trial. He probably was aware that most would not view him very kindly. Did he take out the insurance policies just prior to her passing? Or were these things that they had in place longstanding? They were already things in place. Okay. So I don't think that he took out insurance policies just for the money. Okay. But it was a nice little bonus for him. And I guess the reason I'm asking is to see if he had premeditated this murder for months and months like some of them will. No. It was believed that the murder was premeditated because already back in the summer, he was sending, you know, violent emails. He wanted to be rid of her. Right. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until the ultimatums that gave him that final push. That's right. Okay. On July 21st, 2007, after 20 days of trial, Joe was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. The decision was met with cries of joy from Rachel's family and the detectives that had investigated the case. Good. The first part of his time spent in jail was at Midlands and Arbor Hill prisons. Joe was said to have behaved himself in the early years. He went vegan and became a Jehovah Witness and later became known as a publisher who would spread the gospel in jail. The guards tell a slightly different view, though, of Joe's behavior. They say that while in Arbor Hill, Joe was not exactly the model prisoner that his record shows him to be. While he kept out of trouble, he did like to throw his weight around, but somehow always managed to stay out of the thick of it. So just an instigator. Mm-hmm. Despite his official good behavior, Joe's avenues for appeal had all been exhausted by 2016. He eventually transferred to Dublin's Wheatfield Prison in 2018. After his transfer to Wheatfield, Joe set his sights on a transfer to West Three Landing, a place that was more like an open prison setting. But in 2019, he officially lost his model prisoner status when he was caught with a USB full of movies. Oh, you're right, because he loves movies. Mm -hmm. He was a complete movie buff. He faced other problems in Wheatfield, too. Other prisoners didn't take too kindly to Joe's I'm something special attitude. He had several run-ins with other inmates and had to actually be transferred yet again, this time for his own safety, back to Midland's high security facility in 2021. Huh. For over 20 years, Nikki remained involved with Joe while he was in prison. She would call and visit him on a regular basis and frequently was accompanied by his mom and sometimes even his two growing sons. At first, she confessed her undying love for Joe, but as time wore on, the relationship cooled and officially the couple are no longer together, though she does still visit him frequently. What? Mm Mm-hmm. What? 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 20 years she stayed with him? Yeah, they had a relationship for 13 years total, but she still does visit him, just not as regularly as she did before. 
But she stood by him through the trial, the conviction, the sentencing, and was visiting him as his girlfriend for years. Yeah. And there was a time that she was actually wearing a wedding ring. I don't know if they officially got married, but yeah. Wow. And the fact that she was the one bringing him his children to see is just a whole nother level. Oh, yeah. Poor Rachel to even think of her husband's mistress coming to pick up her kids and take them to go visit their father when he was the one who ended her life. Mm -hmm. I think for the boys, it would be nice to have some sort of relationship with their father to find closure for all that. But I just thought it was very unusual or very interesting that it was his mistress bringing them in. Yeah, that's the part that I'm shocked about. It's not that the kids came to see, but why wasn't it like his mom that was bringing the kids? Or mm -hmm. Well, they would all go together as one great big happy family. Wow. Mm -hmm. And did the boys live with the grandma, with his mom? Well, actually, really sadly, it sounded like they spent the first part of their lives after their mom died with her sister. But then her sister died of cancer about 10 Aww. years after. So they lost both of their primary caregivers. Oh, yeah. And I don't know who they ended up with after that. Okay. So after Nikki officially left Joe, even though they remained friendly, Joe still wasn't dissuaded from finding love again. He currently has up to nine women that write him love letters regularly. Oh, I will never understand that. Where's that attraction? Oh, you bashed your wife's head in because you wanted to be with someone else? Oh, yeah. Let yeah. me get in on that. It's just so bizarre. To this date, he has never admitted to killing Rachel and has never shown any remorse other than that little letter that he tucked into her coffin. A fact that just adds insult to her parents' grief that has not gotten any easier to bear over the years. The average life sentence prisoner in Ireland now serves around 19 years in prison. So if that's true and he serves 19 years, 2026 is just a few years from now. Oh no. I think it'll be interesting to see if this dirtbag does get out, if he will try to court the media again with his trickery. Because he's still claiming that he's innocent, I wonder if he's going to continue on that path. Yeah. Oh, I hope he doesn't get out. Because of all the media around this case and so little concrete evidence, there were so many theories about what had happened to the pieces of evidence that the police were missing to convict him originally. One of the most interesting theories was about the clothes that Joe was believed to have been wearing while he murdered his wife. These clothes have never been found. I thought they were in mommy's washing machine. Well, the clothes that he was wearing at the crime scene when he returned to the crime scene were the ones that his mom washed that night. But he went to work after. And so he would have had to change. He would have been covered in blood. Yeah. So those clothes in his mom's washing machine, I don't believe were the clothes that he wore while he murdered Rachel. Right. But he had said he basically, by saying what the robber would have done, he cleaned up in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then he likely ditched the clothes somewhere on his way to work. Yeah. The lead detective on the case did have a theory on what he wore while he killed his wife. Guardy detective Pat Murray believed that Joe had dressed up as Darth Vader when he killed his wife. What? The key to this theory was the fact that Joe was a Star Wars fanatic and had every item of memorabilia in his home. All of the costumes, except the Darth Vader costume. I'm just like stunned. The police did talk to other people and they knew that Joe did have a Darth Vader costume and it was the only one missing when they investigated the house. So did he wear that to feel like more empowered or just to try and scare her? I don't know. The theory obviously has never been proven. 
But if he did dress as Darth Vader to ambush his unsuspecting wife, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I think that it's kind of fitting. He was absolutely cold and calculating in every evil way. True. So I think that he might have wore his Darth Vader costume. To bring his inner evil out. Yeah. Rachel's family even had to take Joe to court in a civil matter just to be allowed to erect a tombstone over her grave. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's-, that's ridiculous. If you murder your wife, you should have zero say on what happens to her in her burial. But it took so long for them even to just get a tombstone erected for her because he fought it. Which makes no sense to me. If you're going to play this grieving widower, why are you not going to want to give her a proper place to be rested? He is just so evil. And I think he just did it to be mean to her parents. Yeah. And these were people that he had a good relationship with. These were people that actually defended him to other people. Part of when they've done interviews after, they were so hurt that they had provided him meals. They were taking care of him and the boys. They were trying to make sure that he had a good life after Rachel died. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine one of your friends or neighbors having his wife murdered with two little boys left? It would totally tug on your heartstrings. And so what a slap in the face to find that out later. Mm -hmm. But it almost sounds like he's egotistical. You know, those know-it-alls who just want to argue just for the sake of arguing so that they can be in control and always be right? Oh, and I think being egotistical fits perfectly with he was always the biggest. He was always the one to call the shots. He was the ladies' man at the bars. That's who he was. Yeah. And so he just continually wants to call the shots all the time. And if we look at what the guardie said about him in jail, he liked to push his weight around. He liked to be the big dog. True. Even though he wasn't. Ugh. And that is the case of the despicably selfish, adulterous dirtbag Joe O'Reilly that murdered his wife and then appealed to the media to trick everyone into believing that he was innocent. He's Ireland's biggest loser. Like you said, just totally heartless. So cruel to so many people. Yeah. You were right. That one got me riled. People like that just, I've got no time for it in my life and just so despicable. He really was. It's sad that when we highlight different countries, that it's highlighting some of their worst people. Luckily, there's still lots about Ireland that we can celebrate this St. Patrick's Day. Absolutely. Kiss me because I'm Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Go get your green on and we'll be back again bringing you another case next week. See ya. Bye. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to... <laughs> I was going to say, welcome back to St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> top to the more... Top... Oh, no. <laughs> the Eiffel Tower in 1944. No, 1994. <laughs> <laughs> He's a time traveler, too. There were several people... People? There were several... Purple? Purple? Purple people leader? People that would... There was... <laughs> There were several, no, I can't. <laughs> Get it all out. Okay. There were several people with several people. <laughs> How many people? <laughs> there were several. There were several, I don't know. It would totally tug on your heart spring. It would, springs. <laughs> and it's like, oh. <laughs>
<laughs> We've hardly even had a truck. It's amazing. <laughs> Mine's I like needed a circus <laughs> with flying monkeys around. <laughs> but there's lots about Ireland that we can celebrate this thanks this Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even October. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.